So to kind of fill in, maybe, or recap, two of, not going to say the most important chapters in the Bible, but two really, really important chapters in the Bible, you have this. You have God preparing a place for Adam and for Eve. And it's a really, really good place. God says it over and over. It's good, it's good, it's very good. Tove, tove, good, good. Then he gives Adam a really good job, a job that Adam would be stoked at. And on Wednesday, we saw that in the garden of Eden, it says that there was gold and these jewels there. It was as if God was saying, I've packed potential into this land that you're going to be able to mine it and get from it and build and be creative and even be successful and flourish. It's all in here. And then we saw on Wednesday that God saw something that was not good, that man was alone. So what did God do? Right? To be brutally honest, he brought man a naked woman. So what he did. And it was good. Really good. So God sees even like, hey, this is not good. I'm going to take care of this for Adam, that I want to be the provider. So he brings this beautiful woman to Adam. That's in the Bible, by the way, if you're young. You should read it. It's intriguing. It's better than BuzzFeed. So you've got just this good, good, good thing. Number one job, a great boss, all he wants in paradise, right? A wife, be fruitful, be multiplying. There's no games. They're naked and unashamed. It's really good. And most of us, if you read chapters one and two, you'd be saying, that sounds awesome. Wow. But then just like the first readers of this book, you're going to then say, what in the world happened? What happened to that? That sounds really good. What happened? And it seems like every man since Adam has been trying to recreate Eden. The word Eden just means delight. Trying to recreate in their mind what delight would look like. And it's always different for people. Some men delight as 10,000 square feet with a view. Other people delight as a tiny home in Portland next to Dutch Bros where you're best friends with the barista. Someone else's Eden is a homestead with a log cabin and a dirt floor and uh, off the grid in Glendale. You probably won't get an Eve to go with you, but have fun by yourself, buddy. Not good for you to be alone there, but you're going to be. <laughs> some it's Walker Road with a goat and some chickens and a horse and two cats. Actually, we have four cats now. Two more adopted us. So I'm officially weird now. Two cats, you're normal. Four cats, I'm becoming a cat man. So I don't know what to do about these cats. They just showed up. I'm like, ah, mmm. Right? We all, all of us are like trying to reach and grasp back, trying to figure out how do we get back to Eden. So chapters one and two are super hyper important for you to understand the Bible. That these two chapters are laying out, God wanted a really good spot for Adam and Eve. God wanted to be the one that whenever there was a need, Adam and Eve would come to God and be like, hey, we have this need. And then God could prepare to bless them by supplying that need. That's these two chapters, super important. So God now, God now puts Adam in this 
super great spot, gives him a super great job, gives him a super great woman. He has a, got a super great God, no doubt about it. So Adam just feels like Superman. Things are super. Does anyone feel like that all the time anymore? Anyone like, dude, every single day, I never have a down moment. It is always super. Like even right now, I feel really hot. Like it doesn't, does it feel hot in here? Maybe it's just me, but I'm like, I just don't feel super right now. Like there's always like something. Not quite right. It's not quite what it's supposed to be. I just read a study. It's from the U.S. Census Bureau. And they said this, they've been taking like a survey of how happy America is. We are the unhappiest we've ever been since that study began, years and years and years ago. And the most unhappy place on earth, guess where it is? Not Disneyland, (laughs) New York City. The place where you can get anything, right? Broadway, food, Statue of Liberty. It never sleeps. There's always something to do. The most unhappy spot in our country is what would seem like Eden of cities, New York City. Humans, you've got this two chapters of, man, look at all this good stuff. But then from this point on, it seems like humans are always unhappy. Like you can never seem to get enough Eden. Have you noticed that? You can never seem to get enough of it. The house is never quite what you want it to be. The car is for about a month and then it gets a dent. Or you see one that you like better, right? You never get, seem to get quite enough joy or achievement or success or love. It's like there is this deprivation in us and we seek happiness, but we can never seem to get it. But let's say just by force of character, you're the kind of person that you're able to get it. You've got all the joy you can want. You've got all the love you can want, all the money you can want, everything you want. Guess what stalks you then? You don't have enough time, right? You're going to die. So then ultimately, we can feel like, oh, I attained it. The moment you attain it, guess what you all of a sudden start worrying about? I'm going to die. Oh, no. Right? The founders of Google, they have everything you could want billions of dollars. Guess what their main motive is right now? Trying to figure out how not to die. Why? Because they know death is stalking them. That's why it's like, I got to graduate by this time. I need to have this much money in the retirement account. Um, I'm 40 years old. Oh no, man, I should be here and I'm only here. Ah, right? Death stalks us. It's why we're always rushing around because we realize even if you can try to squeeze all this out of life, you realize, oh no, death is stalking me. I got to go faster. It's the whole reason why I tailgate people. I'm dead serious. Get out of my way. I'm going to die. I don't have enough time. Hurry up. Move out of my way. Like it, it stalks us. One day we're going to die. So chapters one and two, we have all oh, this good, 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 super, super, super. All of a sudden it's, man, what happened to that thing? There's a book in the Bible that's written all about this. It's a brilliant book. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorite books because it's so raw and it's so real and it's so true. You have this king and you could say it's either by force of character or by fate, just he's born into it. He gets everything. Like if anyone could squeeze Eden out of this world, it was Solomon, our man Solomon. If anyone had the potential to actually grasp Eden again, it's Solomon. Just read chapter two. Take some time today. Read Ecclesiastes chapter two. I'll I'll summarize it for you. It goes like this. Solomon starts talking about his life. He says, okay, 
I kind of lived some ways. I was really a smart dude. So I started to give myself to certain things to see if they would make me happy. So he gives himself to making money. Solomon was so rich, the Bible tells us, that silver was used to fill potholes in Jerusalem. That's how rich he was. Silver just became worthless. And then that didn't kind of make it. Success didn't. So then he went on these building projects. He started building things, water features. And don't think the koi pond in your backyard. Think like Lake Tahoe. Yeah, I built that. I dug that. Like that's the size. He worked on his house for seven years to build it. And there's always somebody that will tell me, yeah, I worked on my house for seven years too. Okay, bud, he wasn't fixing up a double wide in Merlin, right? <laughs> Total different thing. 10,000 people working on his house for seven years. You're talking about an unparalleled structure. He just built to a level that you and I can't imagine anymore. You can't build like that today. He builds, and, and, and that doesn't seem to do it. So then he just became famous. And he's the kind of famous people, famous, he's the kind of a famous person that famous people go to visit, right? The queen of Sheba packs up her stuff, travels however far to come over and visit Solomon. He's that known, that famous, just brilliant. And that doesn't seem to do it. So then he gives himself to pleasure. And the, you guys know that. He marries a thousand women. Now just, it's always one of those things where I have to stop me like, okay, let's think about that for a second. Let me be brutal honest. Because we live in a day and age where there's this idea that's built into Americanism in the 21st century that there is this soulmate out there for you, right? Man, that is a, a, a lie from the pit of hell. Okay, Solomon, a thousand women. There was not an eye color or a body shape or a skin tone or a body shape Solomon did not have. There's not a fantasy he could not fulfill, Right? Solomon makes Hugh Hefner look like a rookie. Six Playboy bunnies? Pfft. I married six gals last weekend. You got nothing on me. Now listen to what he says in chapter seven of Ecclesiastes. He says, out of a thousand women, I still have not found the one. Still looking for the one. Still looking for the soulmate. You know how I know my wife is my soulmate? Because I married her, period, right? The, the grass is not greener somewhere else. Oh, it is a deception. So Solomon, he just lives at a level that it, it's un, no one could do it today. You cannot duplicate what Solomon did. So you have that. He gives this just testimony. Look it, look it, man. I tried it. Every avenue I tried to get Eden. Listen to what he says. I'll read it for you. Chapter two, Ecclesiastes. Verse 15. He said all this. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so wise? Why have I worked my tail off when the same thing is gonna happen to me that happens to the fool? Well, what is that? Verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool, death stalked me. So verse 17, I hated life. I got everything I could imagine, bigger than you could ever blow it up today. And at the end of it, Solomon says, I'm gonna die and I hate life. Then verse 18, I hated my job. 
which always cracks me up. I'm like, bro, you're king. If you hate your job, change it. You can kind of do what you want. I hated my job. Verse 19, I hated the fact that I'm raising a son and I think my son's a fool and I'm gonna leave everything to him. Then verse 20, I was depressed. How interesting that is to me. You've got a guy that lives at a level that most of us dream of. And at the end of the day, Solomon says, the whole thing was a sham and a bummer because I'm gonna die. Why are humans so like caught up in this, this fear of dying? Why are we so caught up? Animals don't have that. You ever seen an animal worried about dying? No, they don't. They don't worry about dying. But we are. We go to a funeral or we watch a body go into the ground. Have you ever watched the body like begin to, to descend into the ground and just have this deep sorrow overwhelm you? Like, oh my goodness. Or you ever watch the videos or the slideshows during a memorial? It's hard. I go to a lot of memorials. It's very hard for me to watch those because it's just so unnatural. Like that person that I'm watching with his kids and with a wife and all that, they're gone now. That's weird. Now, if I was just a random mutation on a tiny little planet in a medium-sized galaxy of a billion galaxies in the universe, I'm so insignificant, death should not bother me but it bothers every single person. It bothers Solomon. It bothers us all because we're not random mutations. That's not what we are. We have, I call it this, in our collective memory, we have an echo of Eden where we know this. We were never designed to die. We were designed to live forever. And so now death is so unnatural. I say this all the time. It's the only reason why people eat kale. And then I always have somebody that says this, Matt, you just haven't had it cooked right. I'm like, listen, bro, I, I don't care how you cook kale. Every time I eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream, I love it. But I know if I eat too much of that, I'm going to die, right? If, we, if you knew that eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream would make you the healthiest person in the world, what would you do all the time? You would always eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream, right? So you can say however kale is cooked, it's good. It's never as good as Ben and Jerry's. I'm sorry. But we don't eat Ben and Jerry's all the time. Why? Because we know we're going to die. So I'll eat some kale. That's my argument. We, we hate death. We don't understand death because here's what we knew. Deep down in our hearts, it's Psalm chapter eight, verse five. It's one of my favorite verses. It says is that God created us and then it says God crowned us with glory. The word glory there, it's the word kavod. It's something that is God alone, that God has this kavod. And yet it says this in Psalm 8 verse 5, God took his kavod, his glory, his weight, and he said, I'm crowning humans with this kavod and with honor. I'm making you my kings and my queens on earth. You're crowned with it. And all of us know something happened in our history where our crowns were knocked to the ground, and we all want to get back to it. We all know that collectively. That's why we have this angst and this unhappiness and this drive and this, uh, and why can't we seem to get it? because our kavod was knocked to the ground. Well, how'd that happen? Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty, fascinating word. We'll look at this on Wednesday. Than any of the beasts of the field that Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. 
And the woman said to the serpent, how in the world are you talking? No. <laughs> That's what I would have said. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her. Important phrase there. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they saw that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I'm going to assume you are familiar with this story. It's very well known. Most people know about it. I want to do one thing and that's it. I have a super simple message. I want you to realize what is the root of the breach of Eden. What breaks Eden? What breaks this good, very good thing that God had made for Adam and Eve? What actually is the lever that brings in all this angst and all this unhappiness and all this junk? Because the crafty serpent still does the same thing today. He still uses this lever in the lives of young and old alike to cause a schism between us and God. It's the exact same crafty thing that Satan, the serpent, does to this day. Now, Adam, he makes his mistakes. We'll look at those on Wednesday. Eve, she does some things wrong, no doubt about it. We'll look at those on Wednesday. But here is the big one. This is what actually undoes Eden. I'm gonna read again verses four and five, and that's the key. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. What does the serpent do there? He attacks the character of God. He doesn't attack his love. He doesn't say God doesn't love you. He doesn't attack God's existence. He doesn't attack the fact that God made a law. He doesn't do that. This is what Satan does. This is the source. This is what breaks Eden. Satan says, the serpent says, God is not good. That's what he says in verses four and five. That's the breach. That's how he breaks Eden. God is not good. God's holding out on you, Eve. God's limiting you. God's oppressing you. God does not have your best in mind. He knows if you're able to partake of this, that you would be like him. So he's trying to keep you down right now. God is not good. When that lie slips into the heart of a believer, 
they become capable of any sin. It is the lie. God is not good. Obedience is boring. Rebellion is exciting. Good girls go to heaven. Bad girls go everywhere else. It's on our bumper stickers. It's the same lie. God is holding out on you. He is limiting you. You are going to miss out. Life is going to pass you by. God is not allowing you to get to your full potential or really to flourish and enjoy life. That's what he's saying. If you truly obeyed God, you'd have no friends. You'd have no fun. You'd have no life. God is killing life. Sin is fun. And God knows that. And he's holding out on you. The serpent does a character assassination on God and it's highly successful. And it's still successful to this day because it happens over and over. God's a tyrant. God's a pharaoh. He's keeping you down. He knows if you're able to do that, able to enjoy that, able to go those places, able to do those activities, you'd have so much fun. And he's trying to keep you down. He's a cosmic killjoy. It's why very often when you talk to unbelievers about Christianity, They'll say, oh, Christianity is a bunch of do's and don'ts, a bunch of rules, a bunch of that. Why? Because the serpent's lie is so powerful. It's everywhere. I was reading this story and it fascinated me about this missionary who was talking to a chief and he was trying to get the chief to believe in the gospel. And the chief had heard the gospel a number of times. He was an old 80-year-old chief. And so he just stopped the missionary and said, hold on a second. He said, if I believe and become a Christian, does that mean I have to stop fighting my neighbors and killing them? And so the missionary said, yeah, it means that. Okay, so if I believe as an 80-year-old chief, does that mean I have to stop eating my neighbors? Yeah, yeah, you can't eat your neighbors anymore. Okay. Okay, so if I believe as an 80-year-old chief, does that mean I have to stop raping their wives? And the missionary said, yes, you, you can't rape their wives anymore. He goes, well, I'm already a Christian because I'm old. I'm too old to run after my neighbors and kill them. My teeth are all gone. I can't eat them. I don't have the desire for women anymore. So being old and being a Christian are the same thing. I'm a Christian. That's the idea. God's not good. He's holding out on you. He's not letting you do all the things that you want to do. It's a lie that high schoolers are told or college students are told. Hey, partying and getting wasted is so awesome, man. Eat of this fruit, man. It's a blast. Oh, I know that Bible verse, Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine. God's not good. Getting wasted is. And social media just fuels this thing. Because you got these pictures of people looking like they're having a great time, drinking their hand, beautiful people. I wish they'd also post the puking, the sickness, the disease, the exhaustion, the fights that happen, the misunderstandings, the broken relationships, the rapes that happen in the party culture. So I just read a book. It was a bestseller last year, read it last year. And every once in a while, I got to update kind of my, where are we at in this? Um, I, my data was 10 years old. Laura Sessions' step book from 2006 called Unhooked, um, How Women Pursue Sex and Delay Love and Lose It Both. 
So this is the newest book in that genre by Peggy Orenstein. It's called Girls and Sex. It's the same idea. These high schoolers and these college girls and what happens when they start engaging in these relationships, what happens to them? I, I, couldn't, I, I stopped counting the number of times I cried when I read that book. The heartbreak, the hurt that these young girls are going through because they believe the lie. God's not good. He's holding out on you. If you could only do this, then you'd be happy. It's told the young girl and the young boy, hey, delaying sex until you have marriage. Are you kidding me? Who does that? God's not good. Having sex is. Same lie. In fact, I heard it say this way to a young gal who was keeping herself pure in high school and her friends had not or some companions had not. And they're like, you're a virgin? Oh, tisk tisk tisk! Poor you. It just breaks my heart. What? You want her to be taken advantage of by a dumb, drunk boy as well? I mean, give me a break. But it's the lie of the enemy. If only you could do this, you'd have Eden. If only you could do that, you'd be happy. It's the same lie that's told to us. That if you give yourself fully to Jesus, if you really surrender to him, you're gonna miss out. You won't be successful. You won't flourish. He'll keep you down. If you really, really obeyed, it'll never work in the business world. That will never work where I live with my neighbor, with whomever. We're told the same lie. God's not good. That doesn't work. There's a better way. There's a different way. It's over and over and over. If you give yourself fully to God, you're going to be miserable. He will make you a missionary in Cambodia where you're going to have to eat bugs like Angelina, Jolie, and there won't be any toilet paper. That's where you'll end up. That's the idea. And it's everywhere. It rushes at us. When a believer begins to believe this lie, they're capable of any sin. God is not good. So what's the solution? Look down a couple of verses. Verse 14, God speaks to the serpent. He doesn't allow the serpent to speak. It's very interesting. Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all beasts and livestock of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is known as the Proto-Evangelium, the very first mention of the good news. God says to the serpent, there's coming a serpent crusher. Revelation calls him the dragon slayer. Paul calls him the last Adam. There's coming a head crusher, and he's going to crush you, and you're going to bite him. You're gonna bite his heel. That's the solution. The solution is Jesus. The solution to, is God good and generous? The solution is to look at Jesus. So think about this for a second. And I'm not gonna be long today. Think about this. You have God the Father saying to Adam and Eve, his creation, the pinnacle, he crowned them with kavod. He gave his own kavod to them. He said to them, in this beautiful paradise, Obey me about this tree 
and you will live. They're in Eden, delight. It's a sunny day, it's sunny delight for them. They're in the most beautiful, best place ever. And God just says, obey me about this tree and you're gonna live. And what do they do? They don't obey. Then God the Father says to God the Son, in another garden, not a sunny, beautiful garden, it's called the Garden of Gethsemane at night. Gethsemane means olive press. The place where he was being pressed so bad that he wanted to die. Read Matthew 26. He despaired of life itself. That's how hard this crushing was. God the Father says to God the Son, obey me about this tree. Galatians 3.13 calls the cross, the tree. Obey me about this tree and you're gonna be crushed more than any other human in history. And what does Jesus do? He obeys. Adam and Eve, obey me about this tree and you'll live. And they don't and they die. Jesus, the son, obey me about this tree and you're gonna be crushed more than any other human in history, Isaiah 53 says, and he does. See, the question of the goodness of God is answered on the cross of Calvary. That's the answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. You don't have death anymore, but you have life abiding the way that you are designed to live. That on the cross, we realize, we see that God is good and generous. That's how you and I undo the lie, the venom. It is the anti-venom for the enemy. So one of my jobs, I take it very seriously. One of my jobs every single week is to try to make Jesus beautiful for you. To try to get back to God is good and God is generous because the next seven days or six days of your life, there's gonna be flooded into your mind the lie of the enemy and it's gonna come from every direction and sometimes you can't even tell it. It's so subtle that God is not good. And so I've gotta constantly be putting into you, no, God is good and he is generous and it seemed best on the garden of Gethsemane. It's seen best at the cross of Calvary. That's where it's seen, that God is good. And whatever narrative you believe, you're gonna live that out in the next six days. If you don't believe God, God is really good and that Genesis one and two is his goal, I wanna prepare a place, Matt, where you can flourish, where you can thrive a good spot. And I wanna provide for you everything that you need if you'll talk to me. I'll see it before you even see it. Then I'll make you aware of it. And then I will help you attain it. If I don't believe that, I'm gonna start believing Genesis 3, the lie of the enemy, that God is not good. And then I become a tool to be used for any sin that I am te tempted by. So over and over, I've gotta keep coming back to Jesus is good. What you believe is what you will be living in the next six days. Proverbs 23, seven says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. How do you think? Do you think God is good and generous? Or do you think God is a cosmic killjoy? Do you think God is holding out on you? And if you really gave yourself fully to him, your life would be miserable, you would not flourish. What you believe is what you'll be living. Just look at a three-year-old. If I tell a little three-year-old, Myron, hey, Myron, you are so fast. What does Myron go do? He instantly runs away as fast as he can, right? He believes it. Come on, Matt, I'm not three years old. 
True. But you act like one. You read some study that tells you, hey, do crossword study, crossword puzzles. They'll make you smart and you'll not get Alzheimer's. What are you doing the next time you get a paper? Crossword puzzles. Because you want to be smart and you don't want to get Alzheimer's. You believe it, you start living it. Your favorite celebrity on Twitter or whatever says, you rub Gudu Gubu root on your face and you will have skin like a nine-year-old. What are you doing at farmer's market the next day? Do you have any Gudu Gubu root here? Why? Well, no reason. I just wanted to get some, right? If you believe it, you will live it. And Satan knows that. And so he knows if I can leverage into you this wedge of doubt about the goodness and generosity of God, I can then pile in all kinds of other sin. So I'm gonna attack you over and over with his goodness. In fact, it's one of the reasons why we do communion every single week now. Because you see the goodness and generosity of God right here. It's Romans 8, 32. That if God spared not his only son, but delivered him up on our behalf, how shall he not with him give us all good things? It's at the cross that the goodness and generosity of God are nourished. It's at the it's at the table, I mean, that we are nourished and reminded he gave everything for me. So I've gone short because I want you to consider one thing. Do you believe God is good? Do you really believe God is good? Do you believe if you fully gave yourself to him, you would end up with a life that gets as close to Eden as this world will provide? Because when we don't, we open ourselves up to every sin imaginable. And we'll see that in chapter four, murder. When we don't, we gotta get it on our own. If that means stepping on whoever or killing people or taking them out of the way, then I'm gonna do it because it's up to me to get to Eden. What do you believe about God? Because if, if we succumb to the deceit of Genesis chapter three, our lives become tools for the enemy. But if you believe the truth that if God spared not his only son, but delivered him up on our behalf, and how shall I not with him give us all good things? Man, we open up a life that can flourish for his glory. We become crowned again with kavod. That's my question. So as you take the bread and as you take the cup, if you say, you know what? I have been doubting God's goodness. You know what? I've been thinking that if I give myself wholly to him, look out. I won't flourish. I won't have Eden. When you confess that, God already knows. Confession just gives him the permission to change your heart. God, remind me of your goodness. As I drink and as I eat, remind me that you are so good as you gave yourself for me, remind me of that. And he'll do that. He'll do that good work. And so Jesus, I ask forgiveness in my life where I have succumbed to the lies of the enemy, believing that I have to create Eden. believing that if I 
wholly gave myself to you, I would miss out. Forgive me of that. Forgive us of that, Lord. May we be a congregation that knows and lives your goodness, your generosity. May as we eat of you this day, may the seed of that faith be watered and may it have an increase in our lives that changes the way we live Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. That you are good and that you are generous. And if we give ourselves to you, we flourish. Forgive us, Lord, collectively for doubt. Forgive us, Lord, collectively for the deceit that so easily creeps in. Cleanse us from that. And may we be a congregation that lives in your goodness and your generosity. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.